0: You know what I mean? The guys and Ashley is what I mean. Been in a series here on Sunday mornings talking about the church. We've been talking about the, the church, capital C, and we've been talking about our church, Faith Community Fellowship. This, I've lost track. I think it's part five. Somebody might know, but if you do, then you are hardcore into this. I think this is part five. And uh, we've been talking a lot about Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. We've been talking about what it is to be a follower of Jesus and when Jesus uh, gave us some heads up in Luke chapter 9 about what it is to be a disciple. If you missed that last week, I encourage you to check out the podcast or online or grab the CD. Um, today I want to get really, really practical and I'm going to talk, re- this really is for insiders at Faith Community. But if you're not an insider at Faith Community... Um, I hope it's a peek into what makes us tick and what's important to us and how we do what we do here. I had someone ask me the other night, I had some guests here um, at our game night, and they were asking how we, uh, they are asking some questions about the church, and they asked, how do we fund what we do? I'm like, and I just pointed to these seats. I'm like, because the people who sit in these seats fund everything we do. So, like, So you don't have like an over like a denomination or I think they use the word federation, which I never heard in the context of church. But So people, people have an idea that money from churches comes from somewhere other than the church. And in our case, everything that we do here is funded by you. On top of that, the majority of what we do is done by you as volunteers. So we're going to talk about that this morning. When the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, I don't know if that's a book that you are very familiar with or if you've read it very recently, but when the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes decided to determine his purpose in life, he started by accumulating a large sum of money. That's where he started. Only to discover that it didn't provide the meaning he'd hoped for. Then he sought power. He attained it and discovered that it failed to satisfy. Next came this scandalous pursuit of pleasure, I mean, scandalous like you could not imagine. Then fame, celebrity, had all those things. And finally, at the end of all of his efforts, he uttered those famous words, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Another translation would say, all of this is like chasing the wind. We were not created to chase the wind. We were created to join God on a mission for his glory. Some people think of God as hanging around beyond the edges of the universe somewhere, kind of watching from a distance, probably listening to Chris Tomlin songs on his, you know, on his earbuds. And The Bible sees it much differently. It teaches that God is at work. He's actively at work 24-7, all around the, well, everywhere, filling his followers with grace and mercy and power to reclaim and redeem uh, and ultimately to fix this broken planet. It's as if God has his work gloves on, too, and he's called us to roll up our sleeves and join him with our talents, with our money, with our time, with our passion. And he wants his mission to become our mission. It's as if he's saying to us, if you're into chasing the wind, well, you can keep on doing that because you'll get tired of that pretty quick. Or you can team up with me and together we'll transform this hurting planet. I mean, what would it feel like to lay your head on your pillow at night and say, you know what I did today? I teamed up with God to change the world. It wasn't like earth-shattering, people aren't going to be writing about it, I'm not getting featured in the front of any magazine, but today, I teamed up with God to make a difference. That desire to be a world changer is planted in the heart of every human being, and if you're thinking, well, not in me, it's probably just because it's been a while. Probably got crushed about the time you were 12, because about that time, you're, you're expected to set those crazy ambitions and dreams and all that imagination. Let's set it aside and let's start dealing with what we've got in real life. I want you to tap into that today. That desire that comes directly from the heart of God and it's planted in every human being. And we can suffocate that desire in some warped sense of reality. We can suffocate it in selfishness. We can silence it with the chatter of, of all these competing demands. We can bypass it on a fast track to personal achievement, but it's still in there. And whenever we wonder if the daily 8 to 5 grind or, you know, our round the clock parenting or whatever, if, if that's all there is to life, if you'll let it, that divine desire will nudge you. And whenever we feel the restlessness and that dissatisfaction, That desire whispers in our souls if we'll quiet ourselves enough to hear it. Whenever we wonder what a life of purpose, of real purpose would look like and what it feels like, I think this desire calls us to something more. Jesus made it pretty clear that what God's idea of a transformed world would look like, uh, first within the community of believers called the church, and then uh, as the values of that community spread out into the world. And he he said, we should... Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. When he said that, he was calling us to trade a ritualized religion for a genuine love relationship with God. That's what he wants for us and from us. That we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we love our neighbors as ourselves. This is about a genuine love relationship. And when Jesus punctuated his teaching with with this concern for the poor, Jesus talked about that a lot. He talked about concern for the poor and the powerless and the oppressed and the disadvantaged and the marginalized. He's describing a new value system. And when he said, take up your cross and follow me, he was telling us in graphic terms that following him would require sacrifice and hardship and death to something selfish inside of us. We talked about this last week. And when he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in my name and telling people all that you've heard from me, he's making it clear that his will for us was to this call to a worldwide mission. This is a big deal. The transformation that God longs for transforms everything, it transforms marriages and families and friendships. In economic and political systems, it lifts up the humble, it humbles the proud, it draws people together across racial and social and cultural divides, it calls us to live in such a way that love wins. In the discussion with our spouse, in the conversation with our neighbor, in the encounter with a stranger, in the decisions that we make, in the response to, to one in need, in the attitude towards our enemies, in the choices that we make, that love wins. I'll tell you, this may come as a surprise to you, but I've never been a great athlete. Where's my brother? I thought I'd hear something out of him. Um, but I've played... Where are you? Oh, you're back there. Um, oh, thank you. Appreciate that. So gracious is what it is. I've uh, got to move on quickly. Don't interrupt me. But I've, I'm not, I'm, I've never been a great athlete, but I've played enough pickup sports to learn that when it comes to sports... It's a lot more exciting to be a participant than a spectator. And I enjoy being a spectator. But spectating never compares with the thrills and the chills of being in the middle of the action, regardless of the level we're talking about. I'd much rather get a little beat up participating in a game that I'm way too out of shape to play than sipping lemonade in the comfort of a lawn chair in the sidelines under an umbrella. And I don't think I'm the only one that feels that way. Here's the deal. Every churchgoer has a choice to make. You can park in your usual spot in the parking lot. You can make your way to a comfortable seat in your favorite row. You can listen to some good sermons sometimes. You can sing some songs. You can chat with some friends and then you can go home and you can repeat that every Sunday morning for the rest of your life. And that choice makes for a nice, safe Sunday morning experience. You might even be a little bit better person because of it. Or you can throw yourself into an adventure by rolling up your sleeves, joining a team of like-minded servants, and helping to build the local church that God has called you to be a part of. So in case you haven't figured it out, today we're going to talk about serving in the church. In this church. And no, I don't feel guilty. Uh, asking people to volunteer in the church because I know that people who let God lead them to where he wants them to serve find an incredible sense of satisfaction that kind of surprises them. And joy comes from that. So what about you? Is it time for you to get up off the bleachers, crawl over a couple benches if you have to, suit up and get out on the playing field? I guarantee you this, that it's far more exhilarating to be a participant than a spectator. I mean, why watch others when you have an opportunity to join them? Here's the thing about the church the church was designed to be primarily a volunteer organization. The power of the church is the power of everyone, as men and women, young and old, as we offer our gifts in pursuit of our God given vision. Uh, Jesus made an intentional decision when he invited Peter and James and John and all these other disciples to help him spread the good news of the kingdom. He could, have, he could have built his ministry and established his kingdom in other ways. He could have remained a solo act... He could have insisted that, you know, his follow, all of his followers do a two or three year missionary stint during their first decade of discipleship. He could have required that his followers attend a couple of years of Bible college or seminary before they got involved, that they have some kind of, some kind of pedigree, you know, and, and certification. But Jesus chose to accomplish his work primarily on the shoulders of ordinary people who lived in the real world of family and business and community. He believed that the same skills used to make clay pots and herd livestock and bake bread and catch fish and make tents could be used to advance the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul, he felt so strongly about being a volunteer. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says he, he reminded the, his re- readers that he himself was one. He supported himself by making tents on the side that he, so that he could serve as a church planter and a leader without being a financial burden on the church. In the interest of full disclosure... Dad and I are paid staff members. Um, I'm grateful beyond words for the opportunity to serve the church in this community for all of my adult life. Dad's been serving in this capacity for a long time. I was going to say a number, but I want to say over 40, about 40, almost 42 years. For me, it's been about it's been over 27. But the kingdom of God cannot advance through the efforts of paid staff alone. We believe that the church is the hope of the world. That Jesus left the church here to be the hope of the world. That when the church is functioning, as Jesus called the church to functioning, we carry with us the hope of the world. We believe that. But that hope rests on the willingness of volunteers from all walks of life. Nurses, carpenters, office managers, store clerks, department managers, social workers, teachers, administrators, business owners, stay-at-home moms, retirees, high school students, retail people, and tradesmen, doesn't matter, to be mobilized and empowered and used by God. Over the years, I've heard a lot of great, what I consider servants of God, describe themselves as just a volunteer. Before I say another word, I want to make something really clear. The term, just a volunteer, should never be uttered at Faith Community Fellowship. It has no place in our vocabulary. The church as we know it would not exist without dozens of volunteers right here at Faith Community. This week, Lethe and I were working on a bunch of team schedules for the next quarter. Do you know it requires 34 volunteers to do what we do here on any given weekend? 34. Right now, we have 125 volunteer slots, 124, 125 volunteer slots to to staff the teams that we have. Nine different teams, 125 different slots. I did some math this week because it's what I like to do. The average local church in North America has 20% of their regular adult and youth attendees participating in service teams, 20%. That's not a healthy church, but that's the average. That's the average. So when you hear my number, you know what we're doing to the the average. So there are lots of churches that it's a lot lower than that. We have 70% of our adults and teenagers involved serving on 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 a team somewhere. And that's not counting what you do outside of this place. That's just what we do on this property. 70%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's some people right now that are just kind of staring at the ceiling because we don't want to make eye contact because you know you're in the 30%. Um, This is not meant to be a guilt trip because, like I said, I don't hesitate at all to invite people to participate in the life of the church because I know the satisfaction and deep sense of joy that it brings. And whether God has blessed you with 40 hours a week of discretionary time or whether you can barely scratch together a couple hours a month from your overloaded schedule, you have the potential to make a difference right here in this corner of the world. So what do you have to offer? Well, first of all, I'm going to say more than you probably think. You have gifts and talents that you were born with, and don't tell me you don't. The passion You have some passion that inspires you. You have some education, and maybe you have some life experience. You have some skills that you've, you've fine-tuned. The pain that you've experienced has deepened you. These are powerful tools for good that God has lavished on you. Why? Not so that You can put a certificate on the wall or so you can talk about it every chance you get. He's lavished these values on us for the good and for the sake of others. Most of us want to live lives of purpose. Yes, I do. We want to give ourselves to a worthy cause. I think it's the years of being bombarded by the messages of a self-serving culture that's confused us. Indulge yourself, fulfill your desires, satisfy your appetites, pursue pleasure. It's all about you. You deserve this. And it's really easy to understand, I totally get it, that investing time and energy into serving God and others might diminish our lives. I understand the hesitation. Because what will really happen, we wonder, if we leave the comfort of the bleachers and get dirty on the playing field, won't we we be busier than ever? Won't we have to work harder? Won't this cost me something? I mean, does this even make sense? Here's my answer to that. You really want to live? And it's, not too, it's never too late to get rolling on this one. Earlier the better, but it's never too late. You really want to live? You drape a serving towel over your arm. Make that the icon of your life. Drape a serving towel over your arm. John chapter 13, pretty famous story. Jesus and the disciples had dinner. And this is actually where I'm going to read some scripture, so if you want to look it up. The foot washer didn't show up. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. Well, at that time and place where people walked in basically in what we would call sandals down dirty, dusty roads, and that's putting them mildly, and then reclined at low tables with their feet not far from the faces of other guests at the table, uh, custom required that a servant at the door would wash the, the dirty feet. Not so in this particular evening. Something went wrong. The foot washer didn't show up. So just imagine you're kind of like standing behind a pane of glass watching this whole scene play out, okay? The first disciple enters this upper room and discovers there's no foot washer. Suddenly for him, it's decision time. Does he wash his own feet? Does he take off his garment and become like a rank and file servant and wash other people's feet? I mean, look into his eyes. Look what, you know what he's thinking. He's thinking, not me, that's not my job. I'm not a slave. I'm not a foot washer. So he's trying to size up now where he thinks Jesus is going to sit in this room for this meal they're going to have. And he chooses an advantageous position at the table and waits for Jesus to come in. Second disciple enters, realizes there's no foot washer, sees his friend already seated at the table. What's going through his mind? Well, if he's not going to stoop to the level of foot washer, neither am I. And he steps toward the second best seat at the table. I think all the disciples kind of do the same thing. They file in. Walk past the water basin, choose the best remaining seat at the table, recline, stick their dirty, stinking feet in each other's faces. And finally, Jesus arrives. Watch him. He looks at the water, he looks at the filthy, stinky feet of his disciples. You can see it in his eyes. Three years, sermon after sermon. Illustration after illustration, miracle after miracle, parable after parable, confrontation after confrontation. Can you see it? It looks a lot like failure. And he walks to the table and he reclines and he just sits there in silence. You think, well, maybe somebody will at least have the humility to wash the feet of the teacher. But nope. Nobody moves. So watch him. He gets up from the table. Walks to the water basin. Starts to take off his outer garment. Carefully picks up the towel, slips it through his belt, exactly the way a common servant would have. Pours the water into the basin. Oh, oh! look at the eyes of the disciples. (laughs) Disbelief. Embarrassment. And as Jesus begins to wash the feet of the first disciple, you see something deeper in their eyes. I think there's agony. I think there's regret. I think there's some moisture there because they've, They're they're asking, what is the matter with me? How did I miss this? Does my whole world revolve around me? It's bad enough that I wasn't humble enough to wash my brother's feet, but I wouldn't even wash the Messiah's feet. How could I have missed this? And Jesus circles the table. And Peter, of course, he resists for a moment, but Jesus knows how to handle Peter. And he finishes his task, and he folds the towel, and he puts it back, and he slips on his robe, and he walks back to the table, and he reclines. And I think there was an awkward pause because I'm a fan of awkward pauses. So I'm pretty sure Jesus was too. So I think there was an awkward pause. And here's what he said. John chapter 13, verse 12. He says, uh, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. Verse 15. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Oh, and very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you what? If you do them. You don't get credit if you know them. You don't get credit if you've written it down. You don't get credit if it's in a frame somewhere in your living room. You'll be blessed if you do them. Years later, the Apostle Paul kind of summed up the example of Jesus that he'd left for his followers with these words from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility <laughs> value others above yourselves. Verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Think about that. Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Who being in very nature God it says did not consider equality of God something to be used to his own advantage. (laughs) What? We use everything we can get to our own advantage. We use the, where we were born to our advantage. Think about that. Here's the deal. Following Jesus into radical servanthood is a sure pathway to fullness of life. I can guarantee you that. Sooner or later, everybody has to decide where to place their bets on life's great gamble on a self-centered lifestyle, or on Jesus' model of servanthood. I want to encourage you this morning to grab a serving towel. It's worth the gamble. Before Jesus showed up on earth, the Holy Spirit operated through a select group of people uh, that they called priests. Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, served as the first priest of Israel, and his sons carried on the priesthood. Old Testament priests functioned as kind of intermediaries between God and the people. So to do anything religious, to pray, to bring a worship offering, to confess your sins, <clears throat> the average person couldn't go directly to God in Old Testament. You, you, he or she had to go through a priest. <clears throat> Jesus, thankfully, Jesus' life and death turned the Old Testament system inside out. So today, we have direct access to God. We don't have to call a priest or a pastor every time we want to worship or pray or confess our sins or whatever. It also means, though, that we become priests to one another. What does a faithful priest do for his people? Well, he prays for them, he encourages them, he watches over them, he confronts them, he grieves with those who grieves, he rejoices with those who rejoice, and as a result, people are loved and nurtured and secure. Imagine a community of Christ followers like this church where every member takes his or her priesthood as seriously as the priests of the Old Testament took theirs. According to Ephesians 4, Paul's writing he so said, God has uniquely equipped some to train others how to serve. Here's what he said. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. He didn't say that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to, to do the works of service. He gave those offices to equip people for works of service. So instead of the Old Testament system, we have congregations full of priests with a few teachers leaders, pastors among the priesthood who are called to equip the people for ministry. And throughout church history, whenever this plan has been implemented, the church has borne great fruit. And I'm not enough of a historian to define exactly how or when the church train jumped the tracks, but it definitely jumped at some point. The early church started off with this beautiful concept of the priesthood of all believers with every member in active ministry serving one another. But in the first few centuries, most churches retreated to an Old Testament model. Here's how it often plays out. A group of 75 or 100 people get together. They decide to form a congregation. And the first thing they do is they hire a minister. That's the terminology they use. Let's hire a minister. First of all, I was talking with somebody, I don't remember who I was talking to this week, about that whole process of, uh, of hiring a pastor and how broken it is in the way that we do modern church. Typically, a pastor gets an invitation to come in, he speaks at a service, he has an interview with a search committee, He might they might have a potluck where he can have surface conversation with people for 30 seconds, and then they vote. There's so much wrong with that. So they say, let's hire a minister. So they hire their minister based on a first impression. And then they say to their new minister, okay, this is what we want you to do. Here's your job description. Preach, teach, marry, bury, make hospital visits, Uh, you're on call 24-7, visit members, uh, counsel the hurting and confused, evangelize the community, raise money, print bulletins, uh, clean the church, do announcements, pray for the sick. Oh, once a year, we're going to get out our report card and we're going to determine whether or not you met our congregation's needs and our expectations. And if you have, we'll keep you on for another year. And if not, we'll find a way to hire someone else. And if the hired minister throws himself or herself into this list of tasks and the church starts to grow, The congregation might hire an associate minister and an administrative pastor or an executive pastor and a youth pastor and a music pastor and to take care of the programs and the people that are beyond the senior pastor's reach. But again, the congregation is paying the clergy to do ministry. So the church ends up with a few overworked professionals paid by tithes and offerings of the congregation to fulfill the whole gamut of priestly functions while everyone else kind of remains passive passive observers sitting on the sidelines, sitting safely in the bleachers watching the game. This is the most widely practiced ministry paradigm in existence in North America. And it doesn't have a shred of biblical support. For several years we've tried to avoid this and we've managed to avoid this mindset. At times we are healthier on this one than others. I think one of the reasons that God made me somewhat thick-skinned is because for so many years I have had to absorb disapproval from people who want me to act on their to-do list to fulfill their job description for me. They want me to perform their priestly function for them, never realizing that God is calling them to put on their own mantle a priestly responsibility to grab their own servant's towel. But you're the minister... Not us. The Bible would say not true. If you're a Christ follower, you're a priest, you're a minister. And I believe it breaks God's heart. When people come to church on Sunday with a consumer mindset, content to eat and run. Serve me, teach me, pray for me, fix my kids, fix my marriage, counsel my spouse. If you don't do all this up to my standards, I'll go down the street and find another church who will pay better attention to me. I've learned that you can't build a, a, a God-honoring church with a congregation full of consumers. Imagine. Imagine what could happen in our church and in our community if every potential minister, every follower of Christ in this room, if we all actually lived according to the biblical mandate. What an incredible power for good would be unleashed in our community. And this... It's a crossroads. This is a decision point, a critical decision in the life of every Christ follower. Will I acknowledge that in the new covenant, in the new arrangement that God has for his people, that those of us who are in Christ are priests? Will I acknowledge that? Will I accept the privileges and the responsibilities that are attendant to priesthood? Will I function like a priest or will I sit back and expect others to provide priestly services to me? It takes kind of a mini conversion. Uh, to move from where maybe you were into full acceptance of the privileges and responsibility of priesthood. And I don't, think anybody, I don't think anybody drifts into priesthood. I don't think anybody drifts into full servant mode. I think you come to a point in time where it's explained to you and you're like, oh, okay, that's cool, I'm in. I can do that. Maybe not on my own, but through the Holy Spirit, I think I, think I can bring something. I'll move towards that. I receive that. I'll accept it. It'll be my new reality as we go forward. When the Holy Spirit comes down in His fullness on those people, those Christ followers, or when he, those, think about those first Christ followers on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit didn't come in a ball of fire and sit on Peter's head and everyone else in the room is like flameless. Didn't happen that way. The Holy Spirit didn't just come on Peter, James, and John and all the rest of them are just like, they're lay people, so they're just volunteers. No, when the Holy Spirit showed up, it's like equal flames all over the place, symbolizing it's a new day. You're all possessors of the full measure of the Holy Spirit this whole thing is mystical and it's supernatural and what's going you know what's going to go on in each of you is intensely spiritual and supernatural you're all ministers you're all priests you all have full flame privileges which means the full adoption of God through his son full guidance full wisdom full courage full strength full power for fighting off temptations all of that now which I could get excited about. Oh, and along with that comes some responsibilities. It's time to do what priests do. It's time when someone needs prayer. Instead of running to the pastor and saying, "Hey, my buddy needs prayer. Would you pray for him?" You're a priest now. You pray. If someone needs the scriptures read to them, they need some clarity. They're going through a tough time. You don't call the church and say, "Hey, can someone, someone there, one of the ministers, you know, go?" Do? No, you bring truth to that hurting friend. You're a priest. If someone needs salvation, explain to them. You don't call the evangelism department. You explain it to them. You tell your story. You got the full flame of the power of the Holy Spirit. You do this. You have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in and on you. And God has supplied this church, and I want us all to grasp this. God has supplied his church with this distribution of the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when we walk around the church, the first thing we realize is that this place is under the supernatural control and authority of the Almighty God, not human beings. And second, that every person that you lock eyes with, every Christ follower in this this church that you lock eyes with, has the same measure of the Holy Spirit going on in their life. Whenever they yield to it as much as anyone does, uh, the, the full measure of the Holy Spirit equips us to do the function of the priesthood. Whether Listen, whether you're a week old in Christ, whether this is your third year following Jesus, or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years. So what happens when you realize that you're a minister? This is the call of God in your life. Like this, is, this is for all of us. This isn't for a select few. What should I do now? What do I do with that? How do I carry out my priesthood? Is there any focus? Is there any direction I should head in? I want to walk you through some foundational texts to give you uh, on this whole topic that kind of give us some context. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul starts off this chapter saying that the reason I'm telling you this is because I don't want you to be ignorant. So he teaches us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. It says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. There's so much packed into that one part of this verse. To each is given. It's amazing how over the years when I've taught on spiritual gifts, I'll teach for 45 minutes on the fact that every Christian has been given a spiritual gift because it says right there, each is given. And I'll go out after a service and talk to some people and someone will say, well, that's great because I, I love, you know, friends of mine, they're, they're really gifted. I didn't get one. I just kind of skipped over me. I didn't make it to class that day when they were handing out gifts and it just doesn't apply to me. To each is given. The each includes the person sitting in your chair. You've been given at least one gift at least one supernaturally infused talent that when it's given over to God, it's infused with this power of the Holy Spirit to advance the purposes of God in this world for His glory. It's so important you believe that, that you accept that, that you take responsibility then to figure out which gift have I been given and where can I best use it? There are no exceptions on this. In fact, we, we have a tool that we use to help you get started. We just call it a spiritual gift assessment. It's not... It's not scripture. It's not inspired of God. It didn't come out of, you know, Paul's, I wish he had like a subsection here in 1 Corinthians 12. That'd be great. But some people who are smarter than me have put this tool together and we use it. It's a great place to start as you explore uh, discovering your spiritual giftedness, and then what to do with that. And uh, we have a few of them available at Volunteer Central. Pick one up and talk with me about it. Look at the rest of this verse 7. To each, of the manif- each, to each one, the manifestation of the spirit, the gifts are given for, what does your text say? For what? The common good. Look up here for a second. My gifts have been entrusted to me by sovereign God, and they are for your benefit. They weren't given for me, for my benefit. They weren't given so that I can go on a power trip about them. My gifts are entrusted to me to bless you. This is such a hard principle to understand because we are, we are so um, individualistically wired You know, we think this is all about us. My gifts are about you. When I use my leadership gifts, it's not to advance my agenda. It shouldn't be. It's to advance and serve the agenda of this church, you. And when I teach, it's not to draw attention to myself. It shouldn't be. It's to equip and inspire and encourage you. Everyone in the church is supposed to know exactly what their contribution to the common good is supposed to be. (laughs) How do you do that? You know by how God has gifted you. That's what you bring to the party. And it's our dream for this church to be a church where every single person knows that they're a priest. Every single person has a towel-bearing servant-mindedness about them. Every single person knows their God-given gifts and and uses them for the common good. And, And we count on everybody else doing that as well. And it can happen. It just means that we all have to take responsibility. And I've heard all the excuses. You know, I'm too busy. I'm too busy at work. I can't find the right place to serve. I served for a while. Then people I served with didn't thank me enough. I've already served. I did that for like six months. And I could debate all this stuff. I, could re- I can respond to all the excuses if you want to get into that. Sometimes I, I love to go toe-to-toe because it just feeds my ego. But uh, here's the deal. I think it's best if we just follow the example of Joshua. He said, you can choose whatever God you want. You can do whatever you want with your life. But as for me and my house... This is what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. There's coming a day when you'll give an account for the gifts that you were given. When is that day? You don't know. There's some motivation for you. You'll give an account for the spiritual gifts, the abilities, the time, the money, the resources, the opportunities that you were given. And if you have just decided, well, I'm not really a towel bearer. It's not my makeup. It's not how I'm wired. It's not my style. I'm not a behind-the-scenes kind of person. Do you got an extra microphone for me? Because that's more me. I just don't have the time in my schedule right now. Listen, if that's your mindset, I really do believe that you're going to be filled with such regret when you stand before the one who was the ultimate towel-bearing priest. I don't want that for you. Listen. God values every task you perform in service in his kingdom. Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Not a single act of service done in the name of Jesus goes unnoticed and unrewarded. Every deed of charity, every gift of mercy, every hour devoted to serving your spouse, your kids, your parents, your employer, your ministry team, a stranger, every single action of servanthood gets noticed. And will be rewarded by God. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. Never in vain. Nothing that I do in the name of Jesus is ever in vain. Even though the visibility of my life and my position in this church offer me a certain level of reward, naturally. There are plenty of days that I come upstairs from my office at home thinking I disappointed more people than I encouraged. And there are days that I leave this property after our Sunday service and I feel like my leadership and my teaching was completely ineffective. And I have to remind myself that at least I showed up and I gave my best, the best that I had to offer, and God saw that. And if I have to go through that kind of mental discipline to keep myself motivated and faithful, what about the person who stands in sub-zero wind chills parking cars on Sunday morning? What about the person who gets very little adult interaction on Sundays because they're serving in a room crawling literally with kids? What about the the person who pushes a vacuum in the parent nursery on Saturday morning? We all need to be reminded from time to time that God sees and values what we do. Sometimes we need to be reminded reminded that we're not crazy. Well, you may be, but that's kind of, you're not crazy for choosing this. I know I appreciate it when I'm affirmed in the right way and I'm told that what I'm doing, when I'm I'm acknowledged and when, when I'm told that what I'm doing is important. I think most people feel the same way probably more so than I do. And we need to do a better job of creating a culture in our church that is encouraging, you know, and and we need to take time to look into into the eyes of our volunteers and remind each other what we're doing matters. God sees it, and for what it's worth, I see it too. Your faithfulness matters to me. Your gifts matter. Your willingness to bring your gifts matter. I'm learning that it doesn't take much, doesn't take many words even, to encourage someone that way. Here's something I've discovered about volunteering in the church. That serving energy builds when we see transformation in the lives of those we serve. I am just going to repeat that one, actually. That serving energy builds as we see transformation in the lives of those we serve. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 3.8, and he says, For now we really live, why? Since you are standing firm in the Lord. He's describing that spiritual rush that you get, that servants enjoy when they see people that they're serving, growing spiritually and living transformed lives. The Apostle John put it this way: He says, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth." And he's talking about spiritual children, people he served and invested in. And another lesson I'm learning is that servanthood longevity requires healthy self-care. A lot of faithful servants get sidelined by a simple problem: too much serving. (laughs) I know. I know. It sounds like it just undermined everything I've just said. You heard it here: too much serving. You know those people. I'd rather burn out than rust out. when all too often, that's exactly what they do. They burn out and they end up sitting on the sidelines. Serving has been on the injured reserve. There's a common misunderstanding in church, and church leadership contributes to this, that busyness is next to godliness. And people who buy into that are convicted convinced that God favors those who live on the edge of exhaustion all the time and that being involved in church activities seven nights a week man that is a badge of spirituality you know it's like sorry I can't get together with you tonight I can't help you with that no sorry I have these 17 church things I'm doing they're super important I don't want to waste time on lesser things like you know things like friends and neighbors and spouse and kids and exercise and sleep and recreation and health I know I've been there the life of a servant isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. The psalmist said, Serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. I tell you, if you're trying to be, if you're trying the best you can to do that, but your joy in life is being swallowed up by this growing bitterness against God that you claim to love and serve, it may be a sign that you're pacing yourself unrealistically and unhealthily. Some Christians see two options self centeredness or selflessness. There is no one-size-fits-all formula for how to balance this, but the Holy Spirit, not even, I'm not even advocating for balance, but the Holy Spirit wants to, to guide us every day as we yield our lives to Him and ask for wisdom and for direction. The truth is radical self-sacrifice requires radical self-care. It's true. I haven't totally figured out how this works, but I know it's true. Self-care is not an option. It's the antidote to exhaustion, to broken relationships, to burnout. It's a necessary component in the life of a joyful, effective, long-term servant who will one day hear those words that we all want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So earlier I said that the decision to become a towel-bearing servant is kind of a mini-conversion. If we were to all make a commitment to being towel-bearing, mantle-wearing priests aware of the power of the Holy Spirit and listening to those promptings throughout our days, looking for people, just looking for people to touch and bless and, and, and lead God's direction. I mean, I don't think God's brought us here to this place, to, to this moment in time for nothing. I think he brought us to this time and place with this particular group of people so that we would fill up this space with kids and teens and young adults and Gen Xers and, multi, and baby boomers and whatever. And after we fill it, that we could fill it again and fill it again. And I can't think of anything that would thrill heaven more. Listen to these verses. This is God's vision for the New Testament church, and then I'm done. Acts chapter 2. I can't get enough of Acts chapter 2 when we talk about the church. Every church wants to be an Acts 2 church. Here's why. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Some of you do this in small group environments. You're interacting with the truth of Scripture, and you actually get to interact in that environment, and you're, you're, you're living in community with other believers through those relationships in a small group environment. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. Listen, unity in the church is priceless. We need to guard it with everything within us. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. We're learning to do that. We're learning it, the value of that, through things like Relay for Life and Operation Christmas Child and through Habitat for Humanity and Loaves and Fishes and many of you involved in all kinds of community activities Causes, and we got a way to go in this one, but we're learning. Verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. I cannot. I don't know why we've abandoned this one. Ask yourself, when was the last time I had some of my church friends into my home for a meal? They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And because the church was living this way, because of this, says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When the church functioned right, God entrusted more people to the church. So why am I optimistic about our future? Because I think in an increasing way, we're still learning to function in a biblically authentic way, and I believe God is going to add to our number those who are being saved. That's our mission. And I, for one, I'm in. I mean, I'm all in. Whatever gifts I have to bring, I'm in. This is my act of worship, such as it is, God's going to get the best that I can bring. That's my commitment. The question is, are you in? Are you in? Will you worship him with your gifts, with the sacrifice of your time and energy and creativity? Will you worship him with your life? Are you in? You might be sitting there thinking, okay, now what do I do with what I've heard today? I feel like I need to act on something here. What can I do? I would love to talk with you about that. So like most Sundays, I'll probably be up here near the front when we're all done church today. Um, I hope you'll come talk to me. If you're ready to jump in, get involved on a team somewhere or just get some information, our new ministry quarter starts on April 2nd. We've already uh, worked on some schedules. There are all, there's always flexibility there. Um, we would happily add some people to some teams. We've also made up some help-wanted forms. Uh, they're on the little bar table right there at the back of the room. They look like this. Um, and here we have all the opportunities to serve on teams at Faith Community. These are available for you to pick up at the end of the service. It shows how many total volunteers are needed and how many openings we have. And I'll tell you what, if we only have 16 openings but we have 18 people, first thing we do is we give our long-serving volunteers a break, let them replenish, but we'll add some more, add some more teams to our rotation. Too many volunteers, we'll address that issue. So pick up a help one or four and talk it over with your spouse or with your family. Uh, bring it back to us next week. Um, leave it right in the basket there at the table or at Volunteer Central in the lobby. Let me just say this and I'm done. I really am going to be done. And actually, Garth and the band, why don't you guys come? Let me just say this. Imagine what would happen. I'll just wait for them to move because you're very, very interested in movement. I know, it's wild. They're walking from their seats to the stage. You've never seen this phenomenon before. (laughs) Are they all settled yet? Okay, good. So come back here for just like 30 seconds. Let me just say this. Imagine, can, can you imagine what would happen in our world if hundreds and thousands of people and even millions of people decided to devote just a few hours each week to generating a wave of good works? that would put faith into action and spread goodwill and alleviate suffering? Imagine. Imagine if every church was suddenly infused with enthusiastic, skilled, loving volunteers who plan and serve and pray to see a bit more of heaven happening on earth. Imagine that. All that's really needed to make a significant difference is a ragtag group of people, spirited, towel-bearing servants who believe it can happen are willing to take the next step So I would just say do something, somewhere, now. Do something. Don't wait till tomorrow. You're going to have an opportunity before you leave this property probably to serve somebody. For sure when you get home today, you have an opportunity to serve somebody. Do something. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we're excited. We're grateful. Grateful to be a part of a church that gets this. We're excited about the potential. We're humbled that you've called us. No doubt in my mind, you could have done everything you desire to do in this world all on your own, but you chose to involve us. Thanks for giving us a skill set and gifts and life experiences that can be used for your glory and for your kingdom. Give us clarity about where you want us to be involved, where you want us to serve. May we be towel-bearing servants who serve as a not so that we can get any attention, but serve just so that we can be a reflection of Jesus. And we we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.